Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Okay, so I'm teaching tonight on the Eightfold Noble Path. And the Eightfold Noble Path, there's, Buddhism is famous for its lists. We've got a lot of lists. We're a list philosophy. Lists, we like lists. <laughs> or we're given lists. So the Eightfold Path is a list. And it's also number four in its own list, which is the, the um, Four Noble Truths. So um, before we even get into the Eightfold Noble Path, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Four Noble Truths. And for many, many of us here, um, some of this story is repetition, but there's value in repetition. It, I think repetition rocks, actually. We, you know, we learn sort of in a spiral way. So we're spiraling around again with some of these things. So this wonderful prince who'd had this charmed life emerged from the castle or the palace in which he lived late in life, in his late 20s. He finally came out from the palace grounds to see what was going on in the neighboring towns. And he, and he famously, and this was the young Buddha, and he famously met four beings, which are now called in the text, the four heavenly messengers. He met someone in misery because of difficult old age, difficult aging, someone in misery because of illness, someone in misery or someone who was already dead, a corpse. And then the fourth heavenly messenger was an ascetic monk. And, um, they're called heavenly messengers because they moved this young man's heart enough that he chose to leave his incredibly um, lush life and become a monk himself, an ascetic monk. So he was really, his heart was really, really startled by the suffering that he saw in these beings, the first three beings, the one who was sick, the one who was struggling with aging and the one who was dead. And he went off in search of a way to respond skillfully to this suffering that he witnessed. And he spent seven years as an ascetic monk in the then pre-Hindu tradition in Northern India. And um, then felt that he really wasn't any closer to understanding and um, really just gave up that ascetic practice, started eating rice milk, which is sort of like old timey ice cream. <laughs> and his fellow ascetic monks were horrified and rejected him. How can you be eating rice milk? And um, he sat underneath this tree, which is now called the Bodhi tree. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm not getting, I'm, I'm not gonna get up unless I have some kind of incredible insight about how to respond skillfully to this suffering that's all around us everywhere. 
And lo and behold, he did have an incredible insight, which was based in a memory when he was a young boy underneath a blossoming tree, fully present, nothing remarkable really going on, but just experiencing the peace of being entirely in the moment. And from that memory, he had a whole sort of domino effect of insights. And so he rose from the tree and um, went back to his old friends, the ascetic monks who were not happy to see him. And he said, no, I've got something to share. And the first thing that he shared after his insights, the very first sermon that he gave was the Sermon of the Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths are really foundational. They're the first teaching he re, they are a, a central teaching. They remained a significant teaching through the Buddha's life and through the, the centuries since then, right up to present day. And they're really, the Buddha said, I teach suffering. That's the first one. The cause of suffering. That's the second noble truth. The end of suffering and the path to the end of suffering. Now, suffering here is the most common translation for the word in Pali, this ancient North Indian language, dukkha. And, um, and suffering isn't quite the right word because the Buddha wasn't saying, I've discovered the way to end all pain. There's just some pain that's inevitable as living beings. We, we have the pain of, you know, what happens physically with our bodies at times, and we have the pain of loss, and we have the pain of, um, you know, um, impermanence, just not knowing things coming and going. So there's just some inevitable pain for all of us, but. We humans add this whole other level to pain where we make huge stories and create all kinds of reactivity and we take completely neutral moments and fill them with pain and agony of our own minds and thoughts and emotions and react and react to our reactions and, and that's dukkha. So we could call it stress, we could call it reactivity. Um, those might both be good words for what we're talking about here. That is what the Buddha was saying. We can end in this lifetime. We don't have to have all this pain. We can have equanimity. We can have peace. So for, of those four noble truths, there's the truth of that there's dukkha or, or stress, let's say. And the truth of the cause. And I'll say more about this in a minute, but the truth of the cause of, of dukkha is our tendency as human beings with human minds to push away, to resist the present moment in favor of grasping something else in the future or wishing for something else in the past. So, so there's the truth of stress, the truth of, of, of the mind's tendency to be dissatisfied and reactive. 
there's the truth that peace is possible and then there's the truth of this eightfold noble path which is where we're really headed right now the, these practices that can help us really really deepen in and sustain peace so the first noble truth um so we understand it as our reactivity or our stress that that it that it's ubiquitous that that all human beings deal with it and it's not really personal to us we have our challenges our individual challenges but we're really not unique with them and and we're not isolated with them there there's there are other beings who have the same troubles and struggles that we do but what's common to us all is that we have troubles and struggles even the most privileged among us so that's the dukkha that we're talking about this energy of dissatisfaction which can run on a scale from subtle dissatisfaction like yeah i know my life is blessed but i wish this a b c d were different all the way up to extreme you know homicidal dissatisfaction um anything in that realm is what we're calling dukkha or stress but i want so i want to say more about though about the second noble truth the cause um this quality of non-acceptance so in the suttas it's called it's it, the actual word is tanha is the cause of stress which translates as thirst but it's meant metaphorically as this ah longing for things to be different this like clinging this notion things could be better and I want this and this craving craving for something else which we all have you know this is an is a natural human energy we've we've all got it we've all felt it and it can show up both as a a, a, a wanting the moment to be different you know and anything from wanting to win the dream home to all the way wound down to wanting the butternut squash to be cooked a little better you know anything in there it's what our minds do because they can imagine perfection and so they want it you know um so it, it can look like that and it can also take this other appearance of aversion no i don't want this push away aversion hate ah stay away <laughs> and the thing about the energies of craving and aversion is that they, they have a lot of authority in the mind they sound like they know what they're saying they have a lot of habit force and they and they're loud and proud and you know and so we believe them 
and often it just doesn't even occur to us to tr that there's any other way to try there's that there's even another option you know it's just like and we're also deeply conditioned to believe these energies of dissatisfaction and craving and so forth we're deeply conditioned to to believe them by the culture around us because us human beings we're all struggling with this same ignorance the same innocent ignorance which is that happiness can be found if i just could change my reality a little bit happiness can be found you know and then you know we can each fill in the blanks we all have them i do too if i dot 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 and that's an illusion is actually that illusion, that innocent ignorance that we carry about happiness can be found if, it's actually that illusion that's the cause of, of this stress or this dissatisfaction, which leads us to the third noble truth. The end of, of dukkha, of stress is possible, or peace is possible, but it's not down the avenues that we usually look for peace. It's this dropping in with warmth to the present moment. Dropping in to the present moment, looking around and holding the whole thing in compassion. Peace is possible in this very lifetime. And we can learn. And the great news is we can learn no matter how old we are. Even if I'm 102, I still have neuroplasticity and I can learn. You know that, um, so interesting that that kind of adage about the, the wisdom of the elders is kind of borne out with brain science that shows that the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that, that can really learn and, and keep learning all the way it, it it can continue to have neurons create new firings between each other and even it can continue to grow new neurons for as long as we live so we we can keep learning and we can learn at any point as long as we decide that we want to about this journey toward peace that the buddha was offering Peace is possible. That's the third noble truth. And then the fourth noble truth is, you know, all right, folks, here's the prescription. You know, here's the process. Here, here are the practices, and there are eight of them. The Buddha is often compared to a doctor because he laid it out like a doctor. It's like, okay, we've got this illness. It's suffering. It's caused by grasping. A cure is possible. It's not, a, it's not necessarily a chronic illness. A cure is possible. And here's the prescription. Here you go, folks. Here it is. And it's these eight things that we can do, that we can practice with. So 
the first two, the, the, the eight are divided into three categories. So the first two are considered the wisdom categories. The next three are the ethical conduct categories. And I'll talk about why ethical conduct is a thing on this prescription that we're talking about. And then the last three are the meditation categories. So we've got wisdom, ethical conduct, and meditation, and that brings us up to eight. So the first two are the wisdom categories. And they're called wisdom because they're both about working with our minds. And the first one is called wise understanding. Wise understanding, I'll say it in a sec, and it'll sound commonsensical maybe, and yet when you think about it, we don't, we don't always act on this. So the first way we can define wise understanding is the belief or the perspective that clarity clarity, you know, clear seeing and kindness or compassion lead to well-being. The belief or the perspective that clarity and kindness lead to well-being. So it's a simple statement, but it's, it's kind of radical because what we would be setting aside if we picked up this belief, if we picked up this understanding, we would be setting aside the understanding that we receive well-being by pursuing experiences or material things, um, you know, or relationships or yummy food or whatever, you know. What we usually think of is where we're going to get our well-being is these short-term pleasures. And sometimes we'll go to great lengths to pursue these short-term pleasures and those great lengths undermine our happiness. There's not a, necessarily a problem with short-term pleasures, but if we are pursuing short-term pleasures from a place of addictive craving, of greed, of aversion and ill will, or of straight out ignorance, we are reaping harm. This is the teaching. And so, so wise understanding in this context is, is this, um, is this belief or this perspective, and it can, it can start as a belief and become a perspective as you try it out for yourself and then notice your own internal states. But cultivating intentionally through mindfulness, cultivating clarity of seeing so that we're not being run by our own conditioning, habit states. We have this whole part of our brain right here. It runs down the middle part of the head and it, 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 has, it, has, it, has, it manifests on both of the lobes there down the middle. It's called the default mode network and it's where we it's where we store all our habits everything that's automated and if we're running from habit um and we're not, and we're and we're you know kind of lost in thought and running from habit like when you're driving from one place to another and suddenly you're in 
San Francisco and you don't even remember crossing the bridge, you are being run by the default mode network. When we're just kind of in default mode network a lot, not present, then it's our habits running the show. And oftentimes our habits aren't seeing the moment clearly because we're not seeing the moment at all. So with mindfulness, we cultivate clear seeing and with clear seeing, we now have this incredible pair of binoculars through which to perceive the world that is much more accurate in terms of appropriate response than what's going to come from habit mind. So clear seeing and then compassion. We are interrelated with everything around us and treating our own selves and everything around us from an open heart, from a sense of care, patience, generosity, perseverance, truthfulness, you know, the list goes on. As we, as we hold ourselves and each other with the, this warmth, then with warmth and clarity, our own well-being increases exponentially. In fact, to the extent, as the Buddha said, that we experience peace and ultimately freedom. Freedom, the word nirvana, or in which we translate as enlightenment, actually the actual direct translation of the word is to blow out or to extinguish, meaning to blow out or extinguish hate and greed and ignorance. That's all we're talking about with freedom. We're talking about setting down hate, not using it as a strategy anymore, setting down craving and greed. And then with clarity, setting down, setting down ignorance and seeing clearly. This is the idea of wise understanding. And the Buddha said, um, the Buddha said, you, you don't have to take this on faith. You don't have to believe anybody. Just try it out and see if it's true for you. And I, I, I'm so thankful for that teaching because I find when dogma is just set in my lap and then, you know, somebody kind of metaphorically crosses their arms and waits for me to believe, I find I, I, I feel annoyed and confused. Like what the heck, you know, I want to know that this is real. I want to know, you know, I want, and if, if, if I can't get some tangible sense that this is really for real, then to me, it just seems like a story. And the Buddha said that, he said, don't just believe these stories, but if you're curious, try the practices and then notice the effect on yourself and the beings around you. So that's wise understanding. And then, Wise intention kind of comes out of wise understanding. It's also an internal mind thing. So far with understanding and intention, nothing at all has happened externally in the world. It's all in here. But intention is 
the energy that immediately precedes action. It's volition, it's will. And so if my intention is born out of wise understanding, then it will propel me into wise action, compassionate action. But if my intention is born out of the usual mistaken view that, that you know, I still have, and we all still have a lot of the time, which is, you know, happiness is going to come from, I don't know, say, um, I don't know, something and, and somebody's in my way. And so I'm irritated with that person because they're in my way and I get all angry and annoyed because I'm in pursuit of my happiness. <sighs> so if I, if I am coming from, from a confused view, a confused understanding, then my intention will be born out of that and it will propel me into action that I might later regret. So you can see intention is that little ball of energy that sits between understanding and action. And it's very powerful. The Buddha said intention is karma because it's the cause of action. So with wise intention, we have a commitment to work not only with you know, aspiration, but also with this small volitional intention that's, that's small but powerful, small but mighty. So understanding and intention are the two wisdom aspects on this path. And we can practice them. We can practice with them. We can explore them. You know, it's an inside job, but it can be done. And it's great to be in community like this where we can be with other fellow travelers. So then the next three are ethical action and, and um, you know, again, ethical and ethical action uh, is sort of our best translation of the poly. It's basically means it's, it, it, it's wholesome action or action that's caring, doesn't cause harm. The Dalai Lama has said, if you can't help people, at least try not to harm them. And even not harming counts as ethical action. So just having a simple, neutral kind of a day is a, is a gold star. So uh, these three are wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And, you know, I want to say that, you know, I'm just talking about this, like, like, it's just like, this is what it is. And the truth is, these are really hard to do. You know, it's not like these are easy. We have to learn and learn and learn and learn and try and try and try and try. But it's worth it. It's worth it. The Buddha said, patience is the supreme virtue. Because we just, we just keep on coming back and persevering. So wise speech, 
means speaking honestly, not lying, and even not exaggerating. Speaking politely rather than harshly. Speaking what is beneficial rather than gossip or idle speech. Speaking with goodwill rather than with resentment. And then also um, speaking in a timely way, being aware of sort of your timing so that you're not, you know, sharing an important piece of information right when somebody's rushing out the door or something like that and it what's why speech it's already a really really hard enough practice for us ourselves or for some of us maybe not all of us but it's really important not to apply these wise speech rules to others. We each have to have our own journey with this. <laughs> when other people are not having wise speech, then our practice is patience and compassion and looking for the good. But for us, you know, we want to take on some heavy spiritual lifting and for the benefit of others, yes, and also for our own benefit. Because remember, the teaching here is that these are the eight practices that lead to freedom freedom that's a big promise and speech is one of those things so not only are we talking about speech in the world but i also like to consider the speech we have to ourselves inside our own heads because often we're a lot harsher with ourselves and our speech than we are toward others so beginning to have a look at that and with loving kindness and compassion practices, cultivating an inner warm voice. So that's speech. And then the next one, wise action, is a big one because it has to do with all our actions in the world, everything we do with our bodies. Behaving peacefully and harmoniously. Compassionate action for self or others. And it can also involve restraint. So it can be, you know, proactive, but it can also be not doing stuff. You know, I feel a strong, a strong intentional urge to hit a wall because I'm so mad or whatever. And then I restrain to say something mean and I restrain. Restraint has a place. And yeah, so generally actions of care, of compassion, of thoughtfulness, of consideration, and of and of restraint. You know, sometimes restraint is a rock star move. It's like by far the best thing I can do. And, and that's great. And then, so that's 
one, two, three, four. And then number five is wise livelihood. And that's, that's how do you sustain yourself? So with wise livelihood, um, we want to make living, make our living or, or, or receive our living in ways that don't cause harm. And the Buddha had a very specific list to not, not make your living by killing or enslaving humans or animals, um, not uh, manufacturing poisons, you know, basically not doing the big harm things. And then you can kind of look over on the other side and say, well, the way I make my living is doesn't cause harm and that can feel good. And it's also possible that you can notice, well, the way my, I make my living is actually in some ways beneficial. And you can feel great about that if that's the case for you. That, and, and include that in your definition of your spiritual journey. That's great if you feel that there's some way in which you have, have offered a benefit to others. That is beautiful and counts, counts a lot. It's one of the eight steps to freedom. So those are the three ethical, ethical conduct um, steps on the Eightfold Noble Path. So we have the wisdom ones and the conduct ones. And then the last three are called the meditation group. Um, and because we can do them all on the cushion in meditation, for sure. They're also um, inner work things. It's really cool thing I, I learned recently, which is that in Tibet, in the Tibetan language, there is no word for our word Buddhist. Instead, their word is insiders. Insiders, not meaning like the inside club and not excluding anybody. Insiders meaning we work inside ourselves to free ourselves from reactivity and stress and suffering. We do the inner work, insiders. It's pretty sweet. And so these last three are kind of insider things as the wisdom ones are too. But these are insider because we can do them in formal practice and we can also do them in daily life. So the first of these and number six of the Eightfold Noble Path is what's called wise effort. And this is working with our inner states so that we're more likely to be manifesting these wholesome states like, you know, like I was mentioning, um, loving kindness, compassion, appreciation, equanimity, generosity, um, truthfulness, um, patience, wise energy, um, investigation. There's a lots of them and mindfulness. And um, so we want to cultivate those more. And then we also want to release our reactive stuff where we just, you know, go into addict addiction mode with some kind of substance or behavior, or we, you know, 
have all this reactivity and rage, or we get really lazy and, and, and tune out, you know, and days turn to weeks, turn to months, lazy, you know, kind of thing. And these are normal human things, but they don't serve our well-being, you know? So, so we want to lessen those and raise up these wholesome. And um, the Buddha compared the mind to a garden and that there are ways that we can practice with our minds and our inner states so that we're preventing these unwholesome states from arising or when they've already arisen, you can feel yourself in craving or rage or whatever. We can calm them and soothe them and quiet them down. <laughs> and then meanwhile, we can cultivate these wise states by, for example, coming to a circle like this one where we're at right now and maintain them once they're arisen in a variety of ways. Um, which I'm going to say more about next week. All these eight we'll go into more deeply next week. Believe it or not, this is the overview. And um, so, so that's the basic idea of wise effort. We effortfully work with our inner life. The seventh one is wise mindfulness. Yay, there it is, mindfulness. And we all know that one. And we can cultivate it on the cushion or we can cultivate it in daily life or both. And super, super helpful, superpower energy. There's more to say about that, but not don't need to right now. And then the eighth one is wise concentration. So we've cultivated these other energies and, and now the mind is and the body are able to gather themselves, gather themselves and be calm and content and gathered. And they can, the mind can now comfortably focus. So we can, we have our mindfulness capacity, we can sense the present moment, feel our butts on the chair, for example. And then with this calm that comes from ethical conduct and working on our inner life and all this other stuff we've already done with these other seven, we can focus and we can stay present in the present moment. And what's so great about that, there's a bunch of great things that are great about that. One is that it's a really wonderful form of happiness in and of itself. I remember being on a concentration retreat and teacher Andrea Fella her whole face lit up. It was the first night of the retreat or something and her whole face lit up and she said, concentration is better than chocolate. You know, it really, it can really bring happiness on itself. And then it also is, a, is basically a road to insight. Because here we are with our capacity to be mindful in the present moment and we're not getting pulled off and distracted and we can really penetrate reality in this deep way and see things unfolding in a, in a way that we don't ordinarily see. So concentration is very powerful too. And it has this aspect of calm to it as well as the focusing of the, of the mind. So they do, they do kind of, you can see them kind of roll out one leads to the next, to the next, to the next. And then they roll back in because with, with concentration, 
we, we can see things as they really are. And seeing things as they really are is what wise understanding is. And so they roll back around again and we keep deepening and deepening in them. But also they don't have to be sequential. If you practice any of these or any aspect of these, you're strengthening them all. So if I decide, well, gee, I think what I can take on right now is the, the aspect of wise speech, truthfulness. I'm interested in working with honesty. Well, if I really put some, some a little effort into honesty, I'm supporting everything else. I'm supporting my capacity for mindfulness, for concentration, for effort, for livelihood, for understanding, for intention, and for action. I'm doing it all. So they all fold in on each other too. They're a hologram. They're a hologram of kindness and clarity. And again, the teaching is our freedom is going to come from traveling the path of kindness and clarity. Okay. Thank you for listening. And I wonder now if anybody has any questions or thoughts or, or anything to add, anything anybody wanted to bring in. And you can either raise your actual hand old school style, or if you know how you can put up the little blue hand or you can throw up a little heart or something. We've got these little fun reaction things, <laughs> a little thumb or yeah. Uh, Paul. Get my microphone on. I just wanted to say that I, been very I've been isolating a whole lot during the pandemic and yeah it's worse than the pandemic really yeah it's, it's my own spiritual COVID yeah and I've been struggling my way out and I suffer from depression and last week was really bad mm, sorry so I was walking today and uh just this evening I said I just praying that I could keep my head clear tonight and I think this is the third of James's sittings that I've been to all year. And the only thing I study in Buddhism are the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Yeah. Because, you know, the rest is just frosting on the cake to me. I mean, I really appreciate the scholarship that goes into the other stuff. Yeah. But and sometimes it's too Baroque for me. I can appreciate it on one level, but all I need is the basically the Eightfold Path. I, yeah. The four noble truths I need to be reminded of when I'm in depression because I bring my own suffering. Yeah. But it's nice to be reminded there's a way out. I, I had forgotten this week. Oh. <laughs> sounds weird, doesn't it? it no, it sounds kismet. It sounds like meant to be. I'm so glad you came tonight. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, it's so cool you said that, Paul, too, because I was just reading this, this great Theravadan scholar, Ajahn Sumedho, who started his... He, he ordained as a monk in 1966, right? He's, he's like the real McCoy. He just said the same thing you did. He said, it's all about the Four Noble Truths. The rest is frosting on the cake. Just exactly what you said. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Yeah, thank you. And, and, you know, yeah, and many wishes. I know there are many of us here who resonate with the struggle with depression, and especially it's been aggravated by the pandemic, so... Yeah, many well wishes to you. Yeah. 
Anybody else? Thoughts, questions? Yes, I, uh, Joe. So something occurred to me during all this, um, and it certainly isn't very profound, but, but all this is um, on, on my side or your side or someone else's side. In other words, it's, it's all from our own point of view, but what if some of the suffering that we're experiencing is caused by other people. You know, you're, you're in Myanmar and somebody is brutalizing you or you're in school and somebody is bullying you or... Yeah. And for sure, you know, applying the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path can do a lot towards helping to deal with that. But, but, I, but there is this sort of reality that you can be just sort of beaten down by, by the world. And I, anyway, I'm just wondering if you had anything to say about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I think the, the only thing that I have to say about it is kind of a repetition of what I was saying at the beginning, that when we use the word suffering as our translation for the word dukkha, when the Buddha said, he teaches the end of dukkha. And we say, we translate that as I teach the end of suffering. It's more grandiose than I think what the Buddha really meant. And he did say that there are certain kinds of pain that are inevitable. Um, you know, physical pain and loss and impermanence are just, just truths for all of us. So I would categorize what you're describing in that in that uh, category, for lack of a better word, just repeating it twice, I would put it in that category of pain that we can't control. But what we can control as adults, I mean, I don't think that these teachings, you know, we can apply them to chil children who are, you know, being bullied in the schoolyard but as adults working with, uh, working with our inner, ha having the privilege really to work with our inner life, we can work to transmute or transform some of our reactivity so that we're not carrying on the pain. Yeah, but it's a really, it's a point well made. Yeah. Well, can I, something else just occurred to me. Mm -hmm. um, so about six years ago, um, I was diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. and, and interestingly enough, um, there were all kinds of suggestions on how to deal with it, you know, visualizing bad little cancers and trying yeah. to exterminate them in your mind and all this stuff. And I found that my natural inclination wasn't to do that. Um, but in, instead, um, I found myself embracing my cancer as just being little cells that had gone awry, if you will. Yeah. Right? And, and then some things happened to me, the kindness of friends, really, that caused me to feel grateful. And over a period of time, that gratitude started to perfuse me. And then, interestingly enough, because I was in the Bay Area doing my radiation and so forth, 
I was able to be at one of James's classes, which I hadn't been. I, I live in the mountains. Um, and James happened in that talk to mention um, the third Zen patriarch. It was very funny. He, he, he was talking about how he wanted the Golden State Warriors to win. <laughs> and he said, you know, and, and so unlike the third Zen patriarch, um, I, I do have preferences, you know. He was uh -huh. <laughs> the great way is not to think off of that. You know, the interesting thing was um, I became sort of like filled with that concept of, of not having preferences and, and, and which was sort of founded on the gratitude that I had because of my friends. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All this is just to say that what appears to be sort of external suffering um, can be greatly modified by one's attitude. Yes, exactly. That's it. Perfect. Yes. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. All right. Well, um, I am going to sing for you, but the song that I was going to sing is too long. So I'm going to add it to next week. And I'm going to close with a dedication of merit, which many of you know. This is uh, from the Pure Land tradition of Buddhism. And it's the wish that all beings be free of suffering and become compassionate and wise. May every living being, our minds as one and radiant with light. Share the fruits of peace with hearts of goodness, luminous and bright. If people hear and see how hands and hearts can find in giving unity. May our minds awake to great compassion, wisdom, and to joy. May kindness find reward. May all who sorrow leave our grief and pain. May this boundless light meet the darkness of our sacred night. Because our hearts are one, this world of pain turns into paradise. May all become compassionate and wise. May all become compassionate and wise. All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Feel free to unmute if you like and